On behalf of Animation Resources, I'm Tabor Dunapace, and we are starting a new podcast series, which we're calling Animated Discussions. Right, Steve? Yeah. Hopefully we'll have an animated discussion right now. Hopefully we will. And joining me is Steve Wirth, uh, president of AnimationResources.org. Hello. We're going to be reviewing uh, one of the ref pack materials, uh, Larry Siemens' The Sawmill, which was available for the month of June, right? June and July. June and July. And so if you're a member, you can get that in our members-only download section. If you're not a member, consider becoming a member to support all of our projects and endeavors. Uh, But we're going to be discussing moments in the film that are noteworthy and that you can learn from in order to further your animation work. If you have access to the film, we're going to be calling out certain time codes as we have our discussion so that you can go to that time code and look at the film at the part that we're discussing it. Uh, If you don't have access to the film, uh, then you would uh, just have to use your imagination, I suppose. Well, I believe there's probably a copy of this on uh, YouTube, so you can probably... Probably. Um, the one we have is a, is a really good print of it, but uh, you can certainly see what we're talking about if you go to the YouTube version. Right. So when you're looking to, to learn from these old-fashioned uh, black-and-white films, you can understand them in a number of different ways. Specifically, if you're an animator... In terms of staging and action analysis, you can learn a lot about how to set up your characters, how to deliver a gag, and how to communicate to the audience. So your staging, if you're not aware, would be the placement of the characters and props on the screen. Black and white comedies have very, very good placement, very good staging in their films because their audiences need to understand what's about to happen, and then they need to be able to enjoy the gag as it happens. The action analysis of the characters is surprisingly good Uh, When you consider that these are live flesh and blood human beings doing very outlandish, sometimes impossible stunts. But we have uh, the the villain characters played by uh, Hardy. Oliver Hardy. By Oliver Hardy. Before he teamed up with Stan Laurel. Excellent. And he has really, really good body language. um, An excellent sense of the shapes that his body is going into and the contortions that he's going into. And he plays the primary villain. And so whenever he is lifting something heavy or hurting somebody or even just uh, pointing angrily. He has an excellent telegraphed ability to show you what he's thinking and specifically what he's about to do. And so you need to watch carefully with any of those physical comedy actors to get an idea of how to draw and pose your characters. He's also very aware of um, his body in relationship to the camera. Mm -hmm. If you look at his scenes, when he um, is standing in front of the camera, he does a big action. He always creates a perfect silhouette, yeah. which is exactly the way that you'd want to draw it if you're an animator. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and very exaggerated. It'd be difficult to know what you look like from the outside like that, but he's got the experience and the ability to very easily shape his body into exactly the right way. A lot of these slapstick comedians got that from vaudeville because they were on a stage. And you'll notice a lot of times that they stage things uh, as if they're in front of a curtain, a flat curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, animation tends to do that too. If you look at Warner Brothers cartoons, whenever they're doing a funny action, almost always it has no depth. It's 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 flat against the screen and uh, performed from left to right or right to left. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing you can learn, you were talking earlier mm-hmm. about uh, staging and action analysis. Another thing you can learn is story structure. Now, obviously, a film like this has very little in the way of specific gags that are useful to us. The situation of a sawmill in the High Sierra, obviously in in our 
ecological times doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> we aren't sawing down uh, giant redwoods anymore. But uh, the specific gags aren't important, but the structure of how they're arranged is. And the way the story is told, the way the characters are introduced, all of that you can learn from the way that the these films are put together. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in this particular film, it follows uh, a formula that you can see in Warner Brothers cartoons. Actually, most uh, 7-minute or 11-minute cartoons or 20-minute cartoons are laid out in this exact same way. Uh, when I worked at Spumco, one of the primary rules was the first thing you do in a storyboard in the very first scene is to establish where you are and the personality of the characters and the relationship between the characters. Mm -hmm. And this particular uh, film does that super fast. Within the first two minutes, they've established just about everything you need need to know. Um, For instance, at the very beginning, we get about 15 to 20 seconds of establishing shots of lumber camps so that we know where we are. Then they immediately start introducing the characters one by one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the characters are all very, very clear, uh, maybe almost caricatured versions of themselves, but it makes sure that the audience knows exactly who to root for, exactly what to expect from each one of these characters, including the star uh, who comes in, Iris in, uh, rowing on a log at uh, 2.23 uh, in the time code. Yeah, which one, is of a the interesting, funny one of the interesting things is that they they are able to distill everything you need to know about a character into a single shot. There's yeah. Uh, that particular shot has an optical that that kind of uh, reveals it, but the other shots are just single shots of a character standing and doing something mm-hmm. that immediately establishes who they are. Yeah, the the daughter of the owner, which uh, as we discussed, is uh, sort of swapped out later on for the rich owner and the rich daughter, uh, maybe due to filming constraints or something. But yeah, it appears that in this yeah. film they they started out with the owner who's kind of a hick character and his plain but but pretty daughter Mm -hmm. um, they end up shifting from those characters to the owner of the sawmill who's a big blustering guy who takes falls all the time right and his daughter who's who's a society girl riding horses and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and it appears that they got partway into the the filming and realized that those two characters that they'd started with weren't strong enough to carry it all the way to the end. Right. So they just shifted horses in midstream, which tells you something about how they're writing these films. Uh, this particular film was probably shot without a script. They had a general outline and they prepared some specific gags, hmm. but the joining part of that was uh, pretty much ad lib. And, Although they knew, okay, here we need to establish the characters, here we have a chase scene, that kind of thing. They didn't know the specifics of it. They didn't have a written down script. So that that gave them a freedom to shift courses if things weren't working the way they really wanted them to be. Yeah. To the strength of the way they wanted them to work, which is uh, something I wish we could do in animation. But unfortunately, <laughs> animation is a lot more time consuming and, and requires more planning. Yeah, I could see why they might uh, swap out the father because he didn't seem like an adversary. He looked pretty kindly and he was laughing um, mm-hmm. at the uh, foreman uh, being embarrassed by the daughter. And so having a, a second larger adversary makes a lot of sense. 
so that it can drive the action of the, the foreman being cruel and chasing him around the camp. Uh, but yeah, it was just kind of a puzzling thing to see. Yeah, he becomes the the person to lead the guy around the camp. That right. that becomes his purpose after the the first few minutes of the film. Yeah. But there's a scene where he and his daughter are uh, eating lunch, mm-hmm. and Oliver Hardy comes up and uh, shows that he's obviously sweet on the girl, mm-hmm. and that again isn't followed up again later as much as it, it could have been. Right. And in fact, the lead female character becomes the, the society daughter of the owner of the mill instead of the, the, instead of the young, uh, country girl, the country girl. Yeah. She, she disappears pretty much by the end of the film. Right. It did lead to a good introduction of the relationship between, uh, the star and the foreman though, because she's giving mm-hmm. lunch to her father. She refuses it to him. He looks upset and then she goes and offers it to, uh, Larry, uh, mm-hmm. And then he accepts and blindly is handing things over his shoulder to the foreman uh, very shortly after that, which leads to him accepting it and happily eating a sandwich and a nice, funny interaction between the two. So they yeah. set up the adversarial setup between the two of them very quickly there and then followed up with it for every other scene and gag throughout the movie. So that was pretty strong. And once they get to the point where they've established all the characters and all of the the relationships between them, then it shifts to being more of a um, chase scene and variations mm-hmm. on a theme. Yeah. And and you can see how those are sort of interchangeable. I mean, it makes sense that they would be, that once you're chasing someone around a lumber cap, you don't have to string them all together seamlessly. You don't need to worry about continuity between gagging uh, and gag very easily. Um, and it sort of frees them up to just figure out how many funny things can they fit into this film, which is a really nice kind of free creative way to make uh, a comedy. Yeah, a character can run out from the right and then run again in again in the next scene from the left and it could be completely different by that point. Right. At Warner Brothers, they they um, constructed their films with what they call blackout gags. And they called them blackout gags because in vaudeville, people would come out and do a funny little skit that was very short and then the lights would drop and someone else would come out and do a funny little skit. Mm-hmm. So what they what they saw the the turnarounds or the blackout gags in the Bugs Bunny cartoons were interchangeable chunks of humor that they could then, once they saw them and, and how they played, arrange in a way so that they built in intensity from a smaller gag up to a larger gag. And in this film, the intensity of the gags is it, extremely well controlled. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember reading at one point about the writing process at Warner Brothers that they were um, sort of vamping on a certain theme over and over again and trying to top each other. And the reason why they had the sort of cork board and um, you know, index card kind of situation is so that they could reorder them mm-hmm. and figure out what the pacing of the cartoon would be by placing their gags in a certain order in a certain way. And Larry Seaman can do the same thing mm-hmm. by simply shooting a bunch of separated gags and then in editing deciding right. how they go together to become if you if you don't deliberately weave things together with continuity mm-hmm. then you're free to be able to order those in a way that is mm-hmm. that fits the pacing rather than uh, shoehorning them into fitting a narrative sure and one part we could see that uh, at 850 in the time code we have a sequence of trees falling as gags for um, the fool character just barely escaping uh, death several times. Mm -hmm. And it begins with him cutting his pants on a um, saw as he's riding a piece of wood across, and he's embarrassed by being discovered by the girls. 
runs into a cabin and two guys are sawing a tree and it falls over and smashes the cabin, revealing him and he runs away. Uh They follow it up with two or three other tree falling gags immediately after to sort of show this kind of escalating sequence of him just having a terrible run of luck. And the setups get shorter and shorter. So it's Mm -hmm. like bang, 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 bang. So we're building a rhythm there. Yeah. And it culminates in him becoming angry and then turning the chase around and chasing the adversaries. There are several uh, recurring gag themes here. Mm -hmm. Uh, The falling trees is one of them. Another one is the punishment of the, of the owner of the mill. Mm -hmm. Um, We have sand falling on him. We have paint falling on him. We have, Buildings falling on him. We have all kinds of things happening. Yeah. And it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The other thing that is repeated a lot are butt gags. Oh, all the and time. <laughs> there's one shot of the owner leaning over to dust himself off with, I, I think it's the boss, Oliver Hardy, standing next to him, dusting him off. And he bends over and you just know that tree is going to start coming towards his rear yeah. end. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, over and over and over people get hit in the butt, which is, which is humor. Disney cartoons were built on that, but the butt gag, there was a story from Ward Kimball where they had dollar gags at Disney, where if you came up with a, with a joke, if you doodled it down on a piece of paper and turned it in and it ended up getting used in a cartoon, you got paid a dollar for it. That's great. And if that joke then led to a sequence of jokes, you got paid $5. (laughs) So Ward Kimball, I guess he needed some money. Mm -hmm. So he started just doing this on the side. Anyone at Disney could turn these in and get paid a buck or five bucks. Word Kimball was turning him in, and he was checking back to see which of the jokes worked. And he found that if he attached a butt joke to his gag, in other words, just shoehorned in a, a butt gag in there, he always ended up with $5 instead of one. Wow. So <laughs> I think he single-handedly was responsible for all the butt jokes in in. Fair Disney enough. cartoons became rich. Yeah, I know another aspect of that um, that I've heard. I think this was something in an interview with Chaplin uh, where the, the sorry, not meaning to make a pun, the butt of the joke yeah. needed to be someone with dignity or power or someone who could not see that they were ridiculous, someone who was um, stoic. Because if you use them as the, the person who got harmed or the person who was embarrassed, then it was much, much funnier yeah. to the audience. And so we've got this dignified owner and this angry, powerful foreman, who are the ones who are repeatedly being abused. Because if they were doing that to the character, the main character, Larry, he's just a little fool, and we would be sympathetic to him, so it wouldn't be funny. Yeah. So it's really good that they use the two of them, because it gives them more opportunities to embarrass or humiliate them all throughout the film. Also, at the very early in the film, um, Oliver Hardy's uh, uh, foreman character, um, when he's first introduced... He's standing on a top of a, a pile of, of boards and uh, another guy comes up to him and accidentally drops the boards mm-hmm. and Oliver Hardy gets mad and throws a punch at him mm-hmm. and knocks him off of the screen and, and down into a, a tremendous precipice, which seems to be whenever someone gets flies off screen in here, they always go, they always fall at least a hundred feet. Um, but in any case that the purpose of that shot was to get audience uh, sympathy with Oliver Hardy's victims yeah, because he's the bad guy. So he throws a punch at a guy that just made a mistake and we instantly know that he's the villain and and we should sympathize with the people that he's angry at. 
And physically, that scene is incredible. Um, the different positions that he gets his body into, the telegraphing of the different actions that he's going through. It's a really good one to analyze frame by frame because you can see perfectly described animation poses in the action. It's very fast, but very effective to show how powerful he is and what he can do with his body. Uh, later on in the film, he takes a giant log and hauls it off screen, throwing it high into the air to hit Larry's character on top of, I think it was the sand at that point, uh, to knock him off. But again, he was pantomiming this very large, heavy, sort of um, powerful throwing action, whereas you can see that the log is on a wire and that it's being hauled off through you know, someone off screen. But it gives you the idea that this guy is superhumanly strong. And he, all throughout the film, he's doing these really great physical poses to describe what's about to happen or, or how um, powerful his character is. So very good animation reference there. I know that I was going to ask, uh, I have in my notes, I was going to ask about the writing logs and whether or not that was animated. And then later on in the film, it became obvious that they were animated. So I have at uh, 425, they were writing the logs um, down. I think it was a sort of shoot as one yeah. of the early chase sequences. And it looked like they were um, sort of magically kind of traveling along this shoot, which I realized was frame by frame animation. Stop in motion. Right. Uh, and then later on, they were doing the same thing with those uh, those logs, but now they were on the ground and they were riding them as if they were train cars going across open ground. So it was obvious that it had to be animated. Yeah, the, one of the interesting things is that I guess uh, at this time there was an interest in, in transportation, new forms of transportation, uh, hmm. uh, planes and trains and, and cars and that sort of thing. And uh, you can see that a lot of the gags where they're riding on the logs are meant to be specific types of vehicles. Like when he, when we introduce the, the Larry Seaman character, he's rowing a boat that's a log. And at another point, he's riding it just like it's a train. Mm -hmm. So there are references to technology in there that would be probably more apparent to people at the time than they are to us now. Sure, sure. I know that one of my favorite sequences uh, begins at 1120 where they are having a chase with the boats. So this would be after the falling tree sequence, the uh, Larry Seaman character becomes angry and starts chasing one of the workers around. They get on top of the mansion and he jumps into the water, into a boat, and Larry's character jumps and flat face lands on the dock instead. Mm -hmm. But then uh, he eventually gets into a boat and the two chase them, each other around in the water and then get onto the land and chase each other around on the land as well which I thought was imaginative and interesting to see them doing that, how angry they could be. But then it was another sequence that they clearly had to have been animating at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a really nice gag and a good surprise as well um, for that center area. One thing to remember is that the cameras back then didn't shoot at a fixed 24 frames per second, and they weren't intended to be projected at a fixed 24 frames per second. Mm. Uh, films had came with on the can, it would say to be projected at X number of frames a second. And the mm -hmm. cameras themselves had cranks on them that the cameraman could crank faster or slower to make action go faster. So for instance, if they're shooting a normal scene, he might crank, you know, one second per revolution or whatever. Wow. But if he's doing a scene that, that uh, has high action in it, he might crank a little bit slower so there's fewer frames of it and it tends to compress the 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 motion 
and make it go faster. Wow. So the person actually doing the camera was a timer at the same time. Wow. Would the films have been shipped with instructions like that? Well, they didn't shift it on projection. Yeah. On projection, what they what they would do is they'd edit it, and then they'd watch it at several different speeds, 18 ah. frames a second, 20 frames a second, 22 or 24. And then on the can, it would say project this film at 22 frames per okay. second. So at, on, upon filming, they were doing this, but not when it was being you know shown to the public. Or not something. when it was shown to the public. It would okay. be a fixed speed when it's shown to the public. But when they were shooting it, they would they would actually undercrank ah. or overcrank to... to okay emphasize certain aspects of gags well that explains something that i saw um, during the stunts sequence uh when they're chasing each other around on top of piles of lumber and across uh beams this starts at about uh 540 in the time code um the stunts were pretty impressive i know that you mentioned that um he was taking some flack for using a stunt man in that uh which becomes pretty apparent because they're doing some very dangerous things yeah jumping across large gaps and at one point um larry siemens character is a very high up jumps across the gap and someone is chasing him and smacks a board down right behind him, but it goes slow motion for a second while he's in midair. So that would have been the cameraman then, I suppose. So what he's doing is he's cranking the camera to create slow ins and slow outs. Wow. That's really incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess he would have been cranking very quickly then so that it would appear slow motion. Yeah. If you want something to go slow, you would crank faster. If you want it to go slower, it's counterintuitive, but the cameramen were very good at this and, and, a lot of times it's completely imperceptible that that's what they're doing, but sure. it's obvious. That's an interesting craftsmanship thing having to do with these films that I would never have thought about. And when you're timing animation, you don't want to time things naturally. Naturally is, is boring. You yeah. want to time it to emphasize the gag. So uh, you're essentially cranking your own film, your animated film, mm-hmm. at different speeds. Yeah. At one point in the in the film, they start building... The gags, they had the variations on a theme that we were talking about, the Mm -hmm. butt gags, the punishing the boss gags, and Mm -hmm. the uh, tree falling gags. At one point, they escalate it to what's called a topper gag. Mm -hmm. And the topper gag is the biggest gag in a sequence that kind of puts an end to it. And you always want to end on on the biggest laugh. In this case, it's the scene where he's on top of the bin with all the paint and the owner of the mill and everybody are down below him. Right. Having a lunch, I think it is. Yeah. And he's, he's up top, you know, eating a sandwich and you just know there's, there's that bucket of paint right next to him. You just know that that thing is going to fall. Yeah. And, uh, Seaman plays it just as a, you know, teasing the audience saying, you know, what's going to happen, but I'm going to string this out as long as I can. I think in the establishing shot of that and the shack, they, showed the initial setup and then panned the camera up to show you what was going to happen. So they're really just telling the audience, look, here's, here's the gag. Just hang on a second and it's going to pay off. Yeah. Sometimes you think that a gag is funnier if you don't expect it. Mm -hmm. But Alfred Hitchcock told the story about uh, the bomb underneath the chair in the room. Oh yeah. That if a bomb goes off, you know, and and you don't know it's there, it's just a bomb going off. Uh But if you, you know, look at the bomb and you know it's there and it's ticking, you know, and, and the person is, is unaware and, you know, and you're saying, no, 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 you're, you're about to, when, when you set it up and you play it out like that, you get much more suspense out of it. And that's exactly what Siemens doing. Yeah. So they're having lunch underneath this tower. All of the guys were getting paint up at the top to establish what it is. Um, Seaman goes to uh, mark a few boards on the side 
and then runs out of paint, sees the tower and heads up to the top. Right. Uh-huh. And then there's a sequence of him splashing things down on top of the boss. He drops the pail, I think, on his head, uh-huh. if I remember correctly. Then does the entire tower come down? Yes, it always yeah. does in a semen cartoon. Yeah. Of course, everything <laughs> explodes, everything falls down. Yeah. And like I said, no no fall is under 100 feet. Yeah. I know that <laughs> we were talking about, uh, upon having looked up Larry Seaman and his uh, reputation uh, of a filmmaker, that he was building really expensive things for the time. And in fact, overly elaborately, such that his producers lost faith in him financially and wanted him to finance his own movies. Even though he was the one of the biggest comedians of the time. And uh, now we don't remember him that much. He died very young and, mm-hmm. and uh, his, he never made the transition to sound. Uh, so while Laurel and Hardy did made silent films and sound cartoons or sound films, we remember Laurel and Hardy, mm-hmm. but the people that were just in the silent era tended to, to disappear. Right. And um, Oliver Hardy told the story about the sawmill. Cause he said that when Seaman was shooting it, he insisted that all of the buildings be practical, that they have modern conveniences inside, that they had plumbing and electricity. And, Jeez. and uh, they're, they're building these cabins just as sets, which normally would just be canvas panels painted to look like logs. <laughs> and he's saying, no, no, it has to be real logs for me. And, you know, he was a big star at this point. He had the right to do that, but eventually it broke him. He did a, a feature version of uh, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And uh, poured so much money into it that there was no way it could ever make the money back. And by that point, he had he had guaranteed the production with his own uh, finances. Right. So he he went bankrupt essentially. Yeah, I was trying to think about why I hadn't heard of Larry Seaman before, and uh, whether whether or not it had anything to to do with the way that he was doing his character and his productions compared to the way that Keaton, Chaplin, and Lloyd did their productions, the only thing I could think of is that his character itself was less magnetic than their personal characters, even though he had lots and lots of great characters in his scenes. His sort of childish, kind of Mickey Mouse almost, uh, rascal, fool kind of character didn't quite seem as sympathetic as like the Little Tramp or, you know, stony-faced Keaton or something like that. Maybe. I I think it probably had more to do with the films and their distribution after he was gone. Because short films were harder to sell Mm. to television other than just uh, as filler. And, you know, people tend to respect the guys who did features. And that when you say Keaton, Chaplin, Lloyd, Laurel and Hardy, all of those did uh, features. Right, right. And Marx Brothers, all of they're all known for their their feature films. And Seaman just made the one, and it killed him, <laughs> essentially. Was this the only one that he... Oh, the, I'm sorry, the Wizard Laurel, of Oz Wizard was of Oz, the, yeah. the only feature that he made, really? I believe so. Wow. The rest were all shorts. Oh, boy. So we're talking about the section where the conflict is escalating, and mm-hmm. we've established the topper gag for the owner's punishment, where right. all, everything falls on top, and, it, yeah. and it's huge. This point then leads to a conflict escalation where the owner stomps off to his cabin, his mansion cabin. Uh, do they make mansion cabins? I, don't, I, I think I've never so. seen one before, but yeah. I guess a lodge. It was pretty elaborate. I mean, two stories and really large. So Yeah, yeah it was huge. Um, but in any case, we, you know, he goes to this mansion and he fires everybody. Mm-hmm. And this is at just about 
pretty close to the halfway point in the film, a little bit more than the halfway point. Mm -hmm. So what he's doing is he's essentially now, he's hit the topper gag for the first set of variations on a theme, and now he's going into a new sequence that's building up to a new topper gag that'll be the topper gag for the whole film. Mm -hmm. So at that point, he's covered in paint from the scaffold collapsing, right? And he's he gets fed up and he decides to fire everybody, takes them inside the mansion uh, and then opens a safe, which is going to um, show us later on. This is going to be where all the money is and gives them. I think it's like their last day's pay or something like that and dismisses them and shuts them all out. But in the meantime, he goes to relax with a little dog in the scene and Seaman and the daughter are messing around with each other and playing the guitar and, you know, uh, making eyes at each other and things. And during that sequence, he's discovered. But. The men come back and take the owner hostage. And so while he's being taken hostage, um, the hero and the girl go and hide inside the safe and the men decide to blow up the safe to open it. Um, It had a really good setup gag there that I love with the dog where the dog picks up the keg of gunpowder and takes it around back and puts it right behind the foreman's butt. Again, nice butt gags and then runs off so that the dog doesn't get blown up and everybody, you know, gets angry at them. And then they blow up the entire mansion, which is a huge, huge effect. Yeah, (laughs) it's a real mansion blowing up. They didn't do miniatures and CGI back then. They actually blew up a real mansion. Yeah, and it's pretty spectacular, too. So then the the safe goes flying through the air and lands and uh, the hero and and the damsel come out and they're all fine. The interesting thing is that you describing what happened in that sequence mm-hmm. actually takes longer than it does on the film because Pretty it's much. so compact and every scene is so effective at putting across the information that it's supposed to, to yeah. put across that it goes really fast. Yeah. And in an entertaining way and by maintaining character, it's a really good little sequence. And especially for something that would be sort of impossible for people to survive that sort of thing. They have a sort of cartoony caricatured quality to them that you feel like, yeah, it's going to be okay. You know, they're going to blow up the house. It's going to be funny. But you don't feel like you're going to see something horrible like body parts or blood or anything (laughs) like that. You know, there's this larger than life kind of aspect to it that makes it that cartoon violence is okay. Well, if you're doing an animated film and you're coming to a section like that where there's all kinds of exposition, Mm -hmm. everybody's fired. Where does he keep the the money? Mm -hmm. Um, The guys are going to come back and steal the money. All of that exposition, you want to do as clearly and fast as you can because yeah. exposition isn't fun. No. What's fun is things blowing up. Yeah. So you, to make time for that, every one of those cuts has to do its job in it concise and clear and short a time as possible. Definitely. And I think they managed to get all of that across in a nice, neat little package there so that we could get back to the fun of you know knocking the owner back into the lake and things like that. And they even set things up in a fun way, the dog carrying the, <laughs> yeah. the uh, black powder around. Definitely. So so that leads to the part of the film where we're going to get to the actual climax, which is kidnapping the daughter and taking her into the shed to lock inside. Yeah, which is now leading to another, another chase scene. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the film consisted of uh, chases getting faster and faster and more people getting involved and mm-hmm. and building up through a series of gags to a topper. Now we're doing one quick chase that goes to a huge topper gag, right? which is where they climb the tree. I guess they're kind of bringing back in the falling tree gags as well, mm-hmm. kind of combining them together. 
since he lowers a rope down into the shack and hauls her up to the top of the tree, the um, bad guys see this and chop it down with them in it. And so they're kind of combining several of those at the same time to yeah, just the, kind of... The tree obviously the is the... It's a logging camp. That's the yeah. overall theme. Yeah. When in the old days, when they would do a Mickey Mouse cartoon, they would just think of a premise, which was, okay, Mickey in this one has a steamboat. Mm-hmm. Mickey in this one has is a uh, an airplane. in a circus. Mickey yeah. has an airplane in this one. That's the overall premise of the short, which is logging camp. Right. So obviously the biggest topper of the film has to hit the premise. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, so that you tie up the, the whole kind of film in a nice little bow. So again, we, we end the film with an absolutely massive, you know, you think that the exploding mansion cabin is the biggest that it can get. And then they proceed to climb a giant sequoia and chop it down. Yeah. Do you think that it was a real tree falling down? Because I, I would have a tough time thinking that that was a fake tree. It looked quite No, it real. was not a fake tree. I'm, I'm pretty sure that wow. was a real tree. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And the ones that they were falling on top of the cabins and stuff were too. Certainly the one that landed right behind him at the end of the falling tree sequence mm-hmm. bounces the dirt and the brambles around him so hard that I, I can't possibly think it was fake. Which is incredibly dangerous, I'm sure, because yeah. you don't know when a tree is, you know, there are all those gags about, you know, you, you chop the tree and then it ends up falling the way you didn't expect it to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, dangerous, but also really impressive. I'm glad that they did those gags earlier because they're a little bit more realistic. Mm-hmm. And if they had done something like blow up the, the mansion too early, it would have taken all of the bite out of those dangerous stunts that were so impressive early. But by putting that right at the end there... They've established that this is a, a cartoon sort of, you know, shot in reality. And it's getting funnier and more extravagant as we go on. And now you don't have to worry about anyone's safety. You know, they're all sort of cartoon characters themselves. Now, anyone who, who has knowledge of silent comics knows what Larry Seaman is doing in this. Mm-hmm. In the, the ones where he's standing there and the tree falls behind him, <laughs> he's referencing Steamboat Bill Jr., which was a Buster Keaton film where in a hurricane things are falling down in the famous scene of the, the whole facade of the house falling mm-hmm. and he's standing right in the window. Right. That's the kind of thing that Seaman is referencing there. And I'm sure that the way Seaman was thinking was, okay, I'll do some Buster Keaton gags mm-hmm. and then I'll do a Larry Seaman topper. That's 10 times bigger than a Buster Keaton. Gag. Yeah. A giant Sequoia, yeah. a giant Sequoia and an exploding mansion. And you know, he was famous for these things. It, all of his films had just huge stunts like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very impressive to see and an, an amazing treat to see something so extravagant on film, especially given that it's all live action. And although we could uh, animate something like that or, you know, doing a drawing would be far less dangerous. Seeing a, a live demonstration of something that extravagant is really a, an amazing thing. Yeah. So once we get past all those topper gag the huge swinging off of the tree and like tarzan and and all of that gets finished we're basically at the end of the film and Mm -hmm. the secret now is to tie it up in a neat little bow and get it off the screen so that everybody is left remembering the big things and not distracted into whatever your ending sequence is that's a good point yeah so that last little sequence all he does is just one more round of his regular gags which is humiliating the owner right so he falls in the lake and uh, he goes over to the girl 
and then the dog chases him off. And that's yeah, it. and the reason that you know you're you're expecting him to to he hugs the girl, and you're expecting okay they're going to go off into the sunset. Uh-huh. But Seaman isn't Chaplin. Right. You know, Chaplin would do that. Seaman was the perfect fool, mm-hmm. and the idea of his character is that he never ends up ahead of the game. He mm-hmm. just survives, and and you don't know quite how he survives. Right, but having him get a girl at the end makes absolutely no sense to his character. Mm-hmm. So that that's one of the things that after you've seen a few semen films, you kind of understand what he's, what he's driving at there. But yeah. the idea of his character is the perfect fool. Right. The, the idea of someone who just stumbles through life mm-hmm. and never really accomplishes anything, but uh, just by sheer fate avoids being hurt every single time. But that makes a lot of sense. I know this is uh, pre-television at this point. These are um, serials being shown uh, in movie theaters, but that sort of uh, reestablishing an equilibrium happens in cartoons and television shows all the time. That you Mm -hmm. start in a certain status quo and they may go through this amazing journey, but they have to uh, re-establish that status quo right at the end. So they can pick it up again the next week when you come back to the right. theater and there's another Larry Seaman film. Yeah, so this can all be episodic. So that would be another structural element to take away is that that idea of beginning and ending it exactly the same thing was quite an old idea and kind of began here either with uh, vaudeville, I'm not entirely sure, but definitely at this point. With Maybe these. Greek tragedy and Greek comedy. Maybe, it, yeah. It might go all the way back. It, it's the way people think and the way people feel about entertainment. Right. There are certain expectations that you can break, and there are certain expectations that you can't break. Sure. If you don't give the audience what they want, they aren't going to enjoy it. Yeah. I did want to talk just a little bit about some of the physical characteristics of the characters and their costumes, Mm -hmm. because they use that as an additional element to help you not only identify who is on the screen, but there's sort of personality and characteristics of them that you should understand. Um, Seaman's costume is very strange. Uh, he's got a little bowler hat, mm-hmm. and he's got pants coming up above his nipples all the way to his armpits. And the big balloony uh, legs that make him look like he's a... Yeah. Uh, I don't even know Like what a bowling is. pin. Yeah. Like he's got a very wide base and a very thin top. I don't quite know what you know that is supposed to represent, but it does the job of making him look foolish. Yeah, it's baggy pants comics from uh, uh, vaudeville. Is, is that sort he... of a, a clown staple? Why they always have like baggy mm-hmm. pants with clowns? Yeah. Because I recognize it. I've seen it lots and lots of places, but I don't know why they do that. I know it gives him maybe a little leeway to pat himself on pratfalls, and it makes him look a little bit silly at, at the same time as being unique on screen. Nobody else looks at all like him. It also gives him a prop that he can use to put personality into his walks. Right. If you look at how he walks, mm. you'd think that those big baggy pants would distract from his silhouette and make his walk unclear, but exactly the opposite is true. Yeah. The way he uses the pants flipping around mm-hmm. becomes its its own shape. So there's a point where uh, he's running away from some of the logging camp uh, workers and he puts on someone else's coat and hat and pretends to be working. And at that point it became obvious to me just how silly he looks and out of place, mm-hmm. which I hadn't really thought of because I'm so far removed from it in time, you know, almost a century into the future from when this was made. But then when he's wearing someone's normal coat and hat, it's like, oh, of course he looks silly, you know? And he still looks silly. He's, yeah, he's even still... when he's wearing normal clothes, he's silly. Yeah, looks absolutely That's ridiculous. mark of a good clown. Yeah, it's very good. 
another thing that uh, we were talking about is the the putty nose on uh, the Foreman character, Oliver and Hardy. His, yeah, and his huge mustache and eyebrows, which were spectacular. I and at, those. at first, you don't even recognize that it's Oliver Hardy. No, I mean, you'd think that you'd immediately recognize him, but mm-hmm. it's so far removed from his character and the costume and makeup and everything go so far to telling you who this character is and what his yeah. personality is that it overrides who he is as a person even. All he needs to do is just get in into the costume and drive it like a car. <laughs> they they said that uh, Chaplin didn't find his character until he just started rooting around in a costume hmm. room, found the bamboo cane and the bowler hat hmm. and the shoes, yeah. and it became, it dictated how he was going to walk and how he was going to at behave and yeah. the whole character came out of the costume. Right. I know that uh, Larry Seaman has uh, sort of clown makeup on, not exactly, but sort of a white face yeah. with like accentuated eyebrows and maybe uh, maybe lips as well. I, I don't quite remember, but it makes it so that all of his facial expressions are very clear. And then the foreman, almost in the opposite way, has all of this hair and stuff over his face, but his facial expressions are really clear also. So I'm not sure how that works, but I would think that it would be more obscure to read his facial expressions because of this giant mustache and, and eyebrows, but somehow he, he managed to be just as clear. Well, I think if you look at it and break it down, mm-hmm. you'll see that what uh, Oliver Hardy is doing there is that he's using his physical stance mm-hmm. and the way he holds his arms and the way he holds his body mm-hmm. to accentuate things that Larry Seaman might do with an expression. Right. On his face. Yeah. So all he has to do is just do the eyebrows down, angry thing, and then the rest of it, his gestures can cover. It may be that the eyebrows are even in a permanent scowl along with the mustache, so that yeah. he gets this kind of baseline default of surliness. Mm-hmm. And then when he does a large expression like surprise or something, then they pop up momentarily in a sort of telegraph. One of the things that I noticed, because the first time I watched it, I wasn't entirely sure that it was Oliver Hardy because I hadn't read up on it yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I noticed that I went, hey, wait a minute, there's a scene, I think it's where he's having the picnic, and he comes up and he points at something with his finger, and he does that thing where... uh, He twiddles the fingers a little bit. Yeah, it goes around in a circle and then points. Right. You know, there's like a little anticipation to get you to look at his hand before he points. Yes. And it's very distinctive Oliver Hardy. Yeah. The other thing is when he falls into the barrel or he goes into the barrel to, to put his butt out. It's mm-hmm. on fire or something like that. Yeah. And he sits in the barrel. That is a Oliver Hardy expression and body position that you've seen in a million Laurel and Hardy's. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Very characteristic and very, very strong character sense also, you know, very entertaining character. Now we've, we've gone through this and just kind of done general notes and the idea behind these reference pack silent films isn't just that, you know, now you've heard what it means and you understand. Mm -hmm. It's that you go back in and start still framing through action. Right. And finding things that we didn't even mention here. Every single scene in this this film has something worthy of study. And even if it doesn't apply directly to what people are working on right now, When you look at this stuff and you absorb it and you analyze it and you break it down, it becomes a part of you that you can then call back on. Right. And another thing I love is that sort of pioneering spirit of early film where they were using whatever they had available to achieve some effect. Um, Like, I don't think that there's going to be a place I'm going to get to apply 
a varying sort of frame rate in animations, either in video games or commercials or what have you. But it's an interesting thought that well, maybe... Well, you do that when you go to twos or fours or ones. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, with traditional animation, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we have a, sort of a digital playback that's stuck at it's a certain rate. everything at a certain frame rate. But yeah. not necessarily. I mean, there could be visual effects that you have to display at a lower frame rate or a higher frame rate. But Pull that sort of... Out. Yeah, that, that pioneering spirit, though, of using that as a tool rather than seeing it as sort of a limitation is a really encouraging thing because as technology changes, you never know what sort of adversity you're going to have to deal with. And being creative in that way is going to provide you new opportunities. Well, studying where technique comes from Mm -hmm. is at ground zero is always more illuminating than just seeing it applied the same way over and over again. There weren't any rules and these guys were making it up as they went along. They were writing, they'd go out on a shoot with a whole crew to the high Sierra with plans to chop down old sequoias and they didn't even know how their film was going to end yet, you know? (laughs) So they, they're out there and and flying by the seat of their pants, literally. Yeah. It's, it's bravery, but it's also, it forces you to be creative. Mm -hmm. Sometimes animation tends to uh, lack spontaneity and not have the direct connection with the person who's making it. Right. In this film, you look at it and it's it's all spontaneous and it's all directly connected to the people who are performing the characters. Yeah. If you can make that kind of a connection between your characters as an animator mm-hmm. and ha- and get across a feeling of spontaneity, it's hard to do when you're when everything is planned down to to twenty fourth of a second. Yeah, definitely. But um, if you can get spontaneity into it, that is golden. And it doesn't even matter if your continuity is entirely correct. You know, you can drop a character like the Hick boss. You can drop him halfway through and no one will even care. Yeah. <laughs> the The story doesn't matter. Yeah. What matters is, is the pacing and how it plays out and the entertainment value. Yeah, absolutely. If this was a Larry Seaman film, the plane would come crashing down on us right now. <laughs> and destroy the entire building. Yeah. We're in the flight path of an airport right now. That's, you have to... <laughs> well, that's a good way to end this, huh? Yeah, sure. And then <laughs> A plane crashes. Yeah. <laughs> that's our topper gag. You just put a sound effect in and then it just goes dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you guys very much for joining us. We plan to do these uh, once a month in uh, conjunction with our reference pack. So probably to release these a couple weeks after the reference pack is available each time to give us time to um, watch the uh, films, to discuss them, and to uh, package this up. So you will have more reason to go to the download page more often and uh, to interact with us. If you want to share your thoughts with us on uh, these reference packs, please Uh, Look us up on Facebook. Uh, We have a very active Facebook uh, user group where we have lots of discussions going all the time. Uh, And we look forward to talking with you about the next one. And also, remember to encourage your friends to join Animation Resources. Mm -hmm. All of the things that we do are volunteer-based. And the more members and the more people we have that are active parts of, of Animation Resources, that's the more money we have to buy equipment, the more... Uh, people we have to be involved with putting these things together. Um, Absolutely. The most important thing you can do is encourage people to join 
pay the dues and be a part of what we're doing. It's pretty important, I think, and, and I think that everybody gets a lot more back for their dues than they actually pay for, sure. but that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, spread awareness for us and help us to build an online animation community. Animationresources.org. Yes, thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye.